Um, we are going to be continuing with a series that we've been doing across our two congregations. So those of you who don't know, we've got another congregation who meets across the road on Sunday mornings at 9.30. Um, that, that congregation has a nicer name. They're called Explore. And so we've been doing this um, series across um, our, con our congregations. Before we start to unpack some of that, I just wanted to give you guys some feedback about yesterday, because we did advertise over a few weeks the conference that happened yesterday. A number of us were involved in it. It was a conference titled The Church and Racial Reconciliation. So the church, um, it was a gathering yesterday of many denominations across the city, um, and we came together and we again just engaged in conversation, in prayer, considering again what God's Word says to us about this issue that has defined the landscape of our country. Um, and so coming away from that, we were just reminded again the value and the importance of us actually as the church dealing with it because there's so much more at stake than simply what meets the eye when we think about the issue of racism in our nation. Yes, so it went well yesterday. Um, lots to go, go away from with. Lots to chew on. Pia was there as well. Um, a lot of things to, to chew on, eh, Pia, um, in the days that lie ahead. Amen. Um, yeah, so we are continuing with our series called A Tale of a Few Cities this evening. And this evening, the subtitle that I didn't put up there is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Now, last time when we were together, that was about two weeks ago before last week's awesome service, where we were able to pray for our urban missionaries we introduced this theme of the city that appears to come at us throughout Scripture. Um, and the last time we spoke about this, I tried to give an overview of the theme as it appears throughout Scripture with some of the high points and some of the low points as the story of cities progresses throughout Scripture. We noticed that our story starts in a garden in the book of Genesis, which appeared to be the ideal human state. But then we noted surprisingly that our story ends with a city rather than a garden in the book of Revelation, and next week we'll, we'll have a look at that. But the garden motif is always in the background in stories of Scripture as we unpack that. <coughs> And so today we are going to zoom in on some of the details mentioned the last time we spoke about this. And they are details that show us, that reflect to us the good, the bad, and the ugly sides of what city life could hold. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two cities in particular that help us to see more clearly the flow of what happens when man builds a city, but when he builds the city, he decides to keep God out, as opposed to when man builds a city and establishes it around inviting God in 
and in, and, and in fact, having God at the very center of it. And so as we unpack these stories, I hope we'll see again um, the flow of the best of times and the worst of times, and how the city, in fact, is a reflection of what is in our hearts. Now, almost all ancient cities had holy places within their city walls. Most cities had structures like pyramids. There we've got um, the, the city of Giza, which is around that. I think we're all familiar with the pyramids. Um, cities in ancient times had statues. They had temples or sacred shrines in their central places of their respective city. And most cities had spaces considered to be holy, more or less in central spaces. So there we've got Giza and the pyramids. Up on the top right there is the, 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 the town called Persepolis, which was believed to be the, the capital of Persia. And then, of course, on the left on the bottom here is the city of Athens, and we understand how the Greeks would worship and, go, and have little shrines um, in, their, in their homes and in prominent places as well. And then on the bottom, on the top right there at least, is the city of the great Zimbabwe um, in the country of Zimbabwe. Um, those ruins still exist today. Zimbabwe, the name actually means houses of stones. Now, when we consider cities such as Babylon or Jerusalem, it becomes evident that in ancient times, these two cities in Babylon and Jerusalem, they could actually have been viewed as rival holy places because they were in existence around the same time period and they were relatively proximate. You could walk there over a period of time. Now, Babylon was the city of the towers. We see there's an artist's impression on the top left there of what Babylon could have looked like. This year is Babylon when it was rebuilt. Um, actually, Saddam Hussein, I don't know if you guys recall him, um, he rebuilt a lot of what the ruins that were left in that, er in that area. He was responsible for, for um, re-establishing some of those ruins. Babylon was the city of the towers, city of the pillars, the holy places that reached into the sky. It was also a city of pagan religion, a city of imperialism, materialism and majestic splendor. While Jerusalem on the right there was a city that was really very different to what Babylon was like. Now in the Bible, most, for most of the Old and the New Testament, Babylon was the city of consummate evil. Um, the sinful city that was always in rebellion against Yahweh and his people. Now, the ancient city of Babylon plays quite a major role in the Bible because it represents the theme of the rejection of the one true God. 
Babylon is actually mentioned about 280 times in the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Babylon was situated in modern-day Iraq, in ancient Mesopotamia on the eastern bank of the Euphrates River and was founded initially by King Nimrod, as it is mentioned to us in Genesis chapter 10. Now, in order for us to understand the city, the city of Babylon that kept Yahweh out, we're going to look at the beginnings of this particular city um, with a story that I hope is familiar to most of us that outlines the desires of the hearts of the men and women who lived in that city at that time. And so we're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 11, and we're going to be reading the first nine verses there um, of, quite, of a quite familiar story. This is what that sounds like. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. You see, in that times, people, they wanted to be special. All structures at, up until then, for the most part, were built just by stacking stones. But these people decided, no, they want to bake their own bricks and use tar to stick these bricks together. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building that city. That is why it was called Babel, or some translations will call it Babylon. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Do you guys, do some of you recognize that structure, that tower? Do you recognize what it is? Can somebody shout it out. What is that? It's the Burj Khalifa. That is the tallest tower in the world. Um, the, the Arabic word Burj means um, tower, and Khalifa is a word that they use in place of um, the, the, the pronoun king or um, leader. So this is the tower of the king, as it were. This structure was finished in 2010, and it took them about six years to build. 
It is 828 meters tall. Um, I think the, the, the tallest building in Cape Town is the Portside Tower, which is the FNB building. <laughs> People are laughing at us already. Um, and so, more than five Portside Towers on top of one another would come close to the height of this magnificent structure. Um, coupled with the record that it holds as being the tallest tower in the world, it also has the highest restaurant in the world. Um, it has the highest residential apartment. Apparently, it's a mixed-use building. Um, and it has the tallest elevator in the world. The elevator travels at 60 kilometers an hour to move up and down through this building. <coughs> Apparently, the air conditioners produce so much condensation that it's enough to water all the gardens around the building as well. And it takes them, it takes window cleaners three months to clean the 24,000 windows. Now, there's a contract that I don't want. Um, it really is a breathtaking marvel of the abilities of man. Now, in the building, they also have a little a visitor's center. And in the visitor's center, they have a little plaque. And this is what the plaque looks like. Um, you might not be able to make out what it reads, but let me read to you what it says on this plaque. These are the words. It says, I am the power that lifts the world's head proudly skywards, surpassing limits and expectations, rising gracefully from the desert and honoring the city with a new glow. I am an extraordinary union of engineering and art, with every detail carefully considered and beautifully crafted. I am the life force of collective aspirations and the aesthetic union of many cultures. I stimulate dreams, stir emotions, and awaken creativity. I am the magnet that attracts the wide-eyed tourist, eagerly catching their postcard moment, the center for the world's finest shopping, dining, and entertainment and home for the world's elite. I am the heart of the city and its people, the marker that defines Imar's ambition and Dubai's shining dream. More than just a moment in time, I define moments for future generations. I am Burj Khalifa. Now, when I read that, um, I cannot help but be reminded of the intentions and the desires of those people who built that city with a tower that would reach to the heavens on the plains of Shinar, expressing their desire to make a name for themselves. Now, coming back to the story and the text that we read um, Genesis 11 um, turns out to be the only time in Scripture where people are openly declaring working to make a name for themselves. 
<clears throat> However, that doesn't mean that it is inherently an offensive act. And I'll try to explain that again. Because I think there's something deeper being described for us here. People make a name for themselves through anything that would cause them to be remembered in future generations. So making a name is actually a phrase that speaks of honor and admirable reputation. Now in the Old Testament where that phrase is used in, in certain places, it is used most often to refer to God making a name for himself. A great name that enhances his reputation. It's used there, you can see, in Isaiah chapter 63 and Nehemiah chapter 9 as well. Where he says, this is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. And on a few occasions... It refers to God making a name for someone. Like Abram in Genesis chapter 12, or even the patriarch David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 17. It's always positive when mentioned in Scripture like that. So we don't really have any evidence to substantiate the idea that making a name was inherently a bad thing in the ancient world. Though in today's culture, we may be inclined to think it is, um, it's egotistical. In the ancient world, making a name for yourself was like having a legacy that you could leave. Even their desire to not scatter can't be viewed essentially as an offensive act, as it's not the same as not wanting to fill the earth, which is what God told them his desires were for them. Because they were family, and families resist scattering. So if wanting to make a name for themselves and leaving a legacy, and having a desire for community, which is about, which relates to their reluctance to, reluctance to scatter, are normal and harmless, if those things are okay, then there's something more being expressed here in this story about the citizens of this city called Babylon. Now, over many years of study and investigation, it's actually been discovered that the Tower of Babel was a structure called in ancient times a ziggurat. And there's three pictures there of what a ziggurat looks like. A ziggurat is a stepped structure it has a wide base with stepped stories that lead to a top. And right at the top of the tower in many designs of these ziggurat buildings, there would be a little temple right at the top there. Now these ziggurat towers were not built for people to ascend to heaven, but it was rather for their God to de descend down from heaven. And so the idea was that the tower provided a convenience by which the God could make a grand entrance into the temple right at the top there 
where the God would receive worship from his people. Now, in the ancient Near East, worship consisted of rituals that were designed to meet the supposed needs of the gods. Babylonians, among others, believed that the gods had needs. They believed that the gods needed food, they needed livestock, they needed clothing, and so on, and that the gods, in fact, had created people to meet those needs. And that is all that their gods cared about in the understanding of the people of that time. And so the religious practice in that system was not defined by faith or by doctrine, by ethics even, or by theology in the way that it helps us today. It was essentially defined as the care and the feeding of the gods. And that's kind of where it ended. And in return for this kind of worship, the gods would protect and make those people prosper. And so a pampered, well-cared-for god made for a flourishing city. So what was so wrong with this and why was Yahweh displeased with these people? Why did Yahweh at the end of it all, as we read the story there, decide to disperse these people through disrupting their communication? You see, the problem was that these Babylonian people wanted to make God perpetually indebted to them. They wanted God to owe them something all the time. They wanted to have God on a leash. And so out of that, their thinking was they would flourish and their fame would spread and they would be people favored by God and everyone would know this about them. So the problem was not essentially that they wanted to make a name for themselves. The problem was that they were working to exploit a relationship with God so that their city would flourish. But constructing sacred spaces should be motivated rather by wanting to make God's name great, not by wanting to make our name great. And so the construction of their city with a tower that would reach into the heavens was ultimately about selfish motives. With them, it was this kind of thinking of, who can I have a relationship with that would advantage me? Or who can I use to get to where I want to be? That was what they were thinking. And so Yahweh saw this, thinking and knowing that this would become a principle that would permeate the very fibers of that city. A city of people who would effectively have fake and dishonest relationships with one another for selfish gain. A city of people who are willing to trample on the needs of others to advantage themselves, beginning right at the top with their relationship to God 
and it would cascade down into the hearts of all of the citizens in that city. And unsurprisingly, it is a way of being that brings worldly success, as the text actually tells us there. Now, I wonder if you know of cities like that, where people are willing to tramp on the interest of others for their own gain. You see, God has always expressed to us the desires of his heart in many ways. When Jesus was asked about what the greatest commandment of God is, he said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so as soon as we deviate from this commandment, we see the breakdown of relationships between men, women, and God. Now, as we transition with Babylon to Jerusalem, we note that Babylon actually went on to become an extremely powerful nation. And we read about the might of the Babylonian Empire in the story of Daniel and in other stories in the Old Testament as well. But Babylon's greed went on also to have a devastating effect on the city of Jerusalem. Now, we don't have time to unpack how that happened, but in the year 597 BC, that's 597 years before Jesus, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem surrendered to them. And the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar he pillaged Jerusalem and took into exile their most prominent citizens. And there's a psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 137, which tells us about the experience of the Babylonians coming in and effectively colonizing Jerusalem. And this is what it sounds like. Kirk and I were talking in the week. We would love to have sung this or maybe even play the Boney M version, um, but maybe another time. It's <laughs> Kirk has it on his phone. <laughs> this is what it says. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I forget you, Jerusalem. May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not remember or if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, 
Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your babies and dashes them against the rocks. Wow. Psalm 137 is an expression of the feelings of the citizens of Jerusalem towards their capture and their exile to Babylon, and also their love for the city of Jerusalem. It is actually a lament of longing and remembrance for their city that was, while they found themselves having to face life in a distant, hostile land. Now, up to today, for Jews and Christians like Jerusalem, is not just a significant physical place in both past and present Jewish history, but is equally important as a religious concept. And it's a concept that transcends time. Jerusalem is actually more than just a city. Jerusalem represents something in similar ways that Babylon represents something. According to tradition, the city of Jerusalem is built on the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed his son Isaac but was commanded by God not to do so. After the Israelites had gone to Egypt to avoid a famine, having been enslaved and then returned to Israel, it was here in Jerusalem that David chose as his capital city. That was about 1,000 years before Jesus. Jerusalem was a key part of the first kingdom of Israel. And it also became the religious hub because it was there that David's son Solomon built the temple, which is the national center of worship for Jews. And so in that time, all of the heads of all Israelite Jewish households were instructed to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year to gather together for the three major festivals. And the city was so important in biblical times that those who could not manage the journey to Jerusalem for those feasts were advised to at least pray towards Jerusalem, in which case their prayer would be heard as though they were there. And in fact, up until today, all Jewish synagogues, as far as possible, they are built facing towards Jerusalem. So that the prayers of those worshippers are directed there in accordance with that tradition. To followers of Jesus, the city of Jerusalem also remains a city of great relevance. as to us not only because of its history, but also because of its prophetic promise 
as a city for the future. But we'll talk more about that next, next week. Bethlehem was the, birth, the birthplace of Jesus. Nazareth was where Jesus grew up. But Jerusalem is the city that hosts most of the testimonies of faith to Christians. Jerusalem was where Jesus preached, where he ate his last supper with his disciples before his death. It is where he was arrested. It is where he was put on trial and condemned to death, where he was crucified and died, someone who was mocked and tortured by the occupying Romans. It is where we believe that his tomb was found empty and he rose from the dead. So Jerusalem then is also a place of deep sorrow, utter desolation, but it's also a place of great hope and redemption. However, while Jerusalem is this container that holds such deep significance and promise, the presence of the spirit of the empire of man has never been far off. When Jesus lamented over the city and the emergence of its brokenness, he said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jerusalem was a city that was meant to be a meeting place for Yahweh and man. It was supposed to be a place where the greatest commandment would be practiced and pursued in the same way that the Babylonians practiced and pursued a desire to make a name for themselves. It was meant to be a city like no other. And so Jerusalem has undergone many shifts over the years. From clearly being the place where Yahweh lives to something else. Psalm 135 says, Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Joel said, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. So what is it like today? If you went there today and you were unfamiliar with the significance of the city, I wonder what your impression of it would be. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city, a city that sees constant conflict. And it's also a city that, isn't, that one isn't able to move around in freely. Pastor Andrew was there, uh, was it about a month ago, eh? East, he was there over Easter, sorry. 
and his experience of it was good. But one of the things that stood out to him was this wall that is built. You, I don't know if you follow the news and you hear about the conflict, the bombings between the Palestinians and, and the, 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 is, the people from Jerusalem. But you see the red section there, this wall follows all the way around there. And that on the bottom left there, that is called the Gaza Strip. So the wall separates vast sections in this supposedly holy city. It seems a far cry from a city whose name comes from the Hebrew word for peace. A Hebrew word which gives you this sense of completion. The Hebrew word that makes us understand harmony. Yerushalem, which is the, the Hebrew way of saying it, comes from the word shalem, which is where we get the word shalom from, which is actually also a greeting, a welcoming into your space. But if we're honest, I think we'll admit that there is something of Jerusalem in all the cities of the world. Think about that. Cities are at odds with other cities. People within the cities are at odds, with, at, at conflict with one another. We hear and we see dissatisfaction, oppression, dishonesty. We hear about corruption. And so I think Jesus longs to gather up the children of all the cities of the world as a mother hen gathers up her chicks. All people are created in God's image. In God's kingdom, inaugurated in Jesus, none are elevated above others or granted privileges at others' expense. And Scripture articulates God's love for the whole world and His desire for everyone to experience new and abundant life. And so as we know, the Lord requires that we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with Him. And this is something that I believe stirs us into action. So that when Jesus returns, and He will come again, and He takes the census of the citizens of the holy city, He will know who gets to stay and who will need to go. I'm going to conclude it right there. We've looked at two contrasting cities this evening, and there's a whole lot more that can be said about them. But now we're going to spend some time in prayer as we did the last time, and we'll do it again next week. So what we're going to do is we're going to break up into little groups. Um, the numbers don't matter really, just kind of form a group, um, and then we're going to spend some time in prayer. And what we've done in the past is we've chosen two suburbs in our city, and we've spent just five to ten minutes just praying for God's presence to be evident in those suburbs. And so this evening we're going to pray for the suburb of Goodwood. That's where Kirk and Taryn live.
And then we'll pray for um, the suburb of uh, the gardens, um, which is one of possibly our most affluent suburbs in our city. And so think about some of the issues that exist within those spaces, some of the challenges, some of the things that we'd like to see in those spaces, some of the things that we'd like to see come out of those spaces.